Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the show, Brian Miller. Thank you, Victor. It's nice to be here. Great to have you here. Now, Brian, you started in a different part of the industry. You didn't start in real estate at all. Why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Sure. So I've been a professional film composer in Los Angeles for the last 25 years. I came out, wanted to make a living doing music, figured out a way to do that. And then along the way, also figured out that any retirement plan or 401k was going to be the one I funded myself. So that really drove my interest in real estate. And I did have a real estate background earlier than that, because starting from age six, I helped my dad build single family houses during the summer. He was a school teacher. And then every summer we would build a house. So that was my summer vacation was pounding 16 penny nails, learning how to put a roof on, putting up drywall and sweeping floors, which probably was a, a lot of the time. And that was probably your least favorite task. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you decided from the music industry, from the film industry to move into the world of investing, just any investing or where'd you take it from there? I started with single family because that's what I knew at the time. And it could be from any industry because most people, they may be depending on the state government for their retirement, or maybe they're depending on a pension. I would say both of things, the state government is probably a little more secure, but a pension can go away. Enron can go bankrupt. You can have 90% of your wealth in a company stock and it's not diversified and it's not so guaranteed. So I think it's wise for everyone to start thinking about their financial future and just seeing some people around me, my mother-in-law, different people on what just four paid off rentals will do for you financially, right? Once you get those paid off and you, they're kicking off a thousand bucks each, well, that's four grand of gross revenue coming in and you don't have a mortgage at that point at the end of the game, that's enough for it to be a change in lifestyle. So just seeing from that very basic perspective, I saw how it could be really instrumental in my later years. And what I didn't anticipate was how quickly it could grow and scale and how quickly it would make a difference in my life. That makes so much sense. In fact, a lot of people talk about, well, I've got to have 100 units or 400 units. And if they're leveraged, the amount of cash flow thrown off by each individual apartment may not be that much. But if you own those properties free and clear, you don't need that many doors in your portfolio for that portfolio to cash flow like a beast. Yeah, there's lots of different ways to do it. I remember reading The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, and there was a story in there about a couple, they bought a single family house, paid it off, decided to buy another house. And now they had the income from the first house to pay off the second. It wasn't long until they owned 20 houses free and clear. And then when they had appreciated the market, like beautiful things happen. So there's a lot of different ways to play the game. I think the main thing I would express to your listeners is you don't have to do what everybody else is doing. You don't have to say like, I have to syndicate and own 4,000 units. Because again, what does that mean? What if you're losing money on 4,000 units? We tend to talk in units because it's sexy and it's great at the cocktail party. Oh yeah, I got 4,000 units. But how much are you making off that 4,000 units? What matters at the end of the day is your after-tax spendable income. So that's what I think you should focus on, not just the number of doors. Now, there's, there should be a correlation, but there are actually, I've heard stories about people who do big deals and they can get a little thin and they can get non-profitable. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the most important lessons. If anything, the post-2008 crisis should have taught people is never to do thin deals. 
deals that have fat margins are essential because if you don't, one thing goes wrong, two things go wrong, now all of a sudden you're underwater. And if you've got a big project, now that's a big problem. And I know many investors who have experienced that even recently and had to go do large capital calls, had to bring a lot of capital in to right the ship. And it's painful when you're going through that. Absolutely painful when you're going through that. So a lot of wisdom. So fast forward to today, what are you working on now? A lot of different things. After I bought my single family, I realized that potentially I was buying a job as you get too many doors. So then I started going into syndication deals, becoming a limited partner, learning that world. I did quite well in that world. And then, oh, maybe five years ago, I met a development partner here in LA and saw the just the math behind building units in LA. New construction in LA makes a lot of sense where maybe holding apartments here doesn't, but when you can build for $150 to $200 a square foot and you can sell that for $400, $500, $600, $800, depending on your neighborhood, a square foot, you just see that, that delta is where you can make a lot of profit. And so as long as you can deliver quickly, you can build a really nice business. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's that delta between your all-in cost and the cost that you can get in the marketplace. And there was a period of time, post-2008, where you could buy things far below construction costs, and it didn't make any sense to build at all. But by 2014, 2015, those numbers had changed. And now, relatively speaking, building new turns out to be a bargain. And you had almost five years of almost no new construction, a lot of pent-up demand for new product in the marketplace. Sure. I think you want to go where the market gives you opportunity. When I bought in Phoenix, one of my best deals was I bought for $33 a square foot. And as a builder, you understand that it's pretty impossible to build brand new construction, two-story, super nice for $33 a square foot. So in that situation, that made the most sense where like in LA, where I have to go, if I want to be in a super nice neighborhood, I might pay $1,000 a square foot. But if I can build for 200 square foot, the land's still going to be expensive in that neighborhood. But you just look at that delta and it, and it makes a lot of sense. So in some of these more expensive areas, what is your target cost per buildable square foot for the land? There's got to be some number above which new construction doesn't make sense anymore. That's a good question. I don't know if I look at it quite that way. We actually tend to market and target more millennial housing. So we're looking at that first time home buyer where they're maybe they're going to be paying three grand, four grand, five grand in rent, which sounds outrageous probably in some parts of the country, but the reality is that's what they're going to pay here. And so they could buy a $700,000 house, especially now with such low interest rates, and they would have a very similar payment and they'd actually own a house. So we like that first time home buyer for a few different reasons. One is I was doing a lot of flips on the higher end here in LA, and there's only so many buyers that will qualify for a two, three, four million dollar house. It can still make sense, but now I see more risk in that. Any softening in that, just a 20% correction on a four million dollar house, that's 800 grand, right? So you can lose money real quickly. Where I like the millennial housing, where like we're building a house that we're selling for 750 or 850. Uh, 850k. We're building that, but if, even if the market slid, we still we could end up renting it, or that that cost comparison of rent to buy is still going to be there. So I think that market is still going to be there. So in rosier times, I might do different deals, but again, looking at the market, seeing what are the opportunities, what are the opportunities the market's trying to give you right now, maybe going places where not everyone is going, looking for unique opportunities is also a good plan. What we've done in a lot of urban markets, for example, in Philadelphia, is we've employed a strategy that we call buy on the line, move the line, 
And that line is that arbitrary line between the hot gentrified neighborhood where there's coffee shops and art galleries and all the rest. And you go two blocks too far and you're in the hood. And every city in America has that situation. Certainly LA has that situation. Now, if that line is an immovable line, like a freeway or a school district or a municipal boundary, you're not going to be able to move that line successfully. But if the line is arbitrary, as it often is, for no particular reason, this street over here is expensive and you go one street further over and it's not, you can often move that line just by buying on the wrong side of that line, redeveloping it. And guess what? The marketplace takes notice and says, oh, the line is moved. I get it. Have you been playing that game? Yes. And in some senses, like we we're developing on a street right now, one end of the street is really nice. Then it goes and starts to get a little sketchy. And then as you drive through and get into like nicer, it starts to improve. So there's a strip or a section in between. So we're right on that strip and we're seeing it improve and get closer and closer. And just because I think in a situation where housing is expensive, right, there's going to be opportunity to keep redeveloping and keep improving. We see a lot of projects going up in LA and those neighborhoods are going to keep improving. And people that are like, hey, they'd love to live in Brentwood, but they don't want to pay that rent and they could buy the less desirable neighborhood, but they could actually own, right? Some of those people are going to take that trade off. In today's environment, there's a lot of people out there looking for deals, hunting for deals. And if they appear on the marketplace with a big red flight, big flashing red light on them saying, I'm a deal, it ends up being the auction environment. And you almost always end up paying too much. How are you sourcing opportunities so that you're not playing in that auction environment? I think some of that, like going where not everyone is going. When I bought the single family in Phoenix, I call it like running into the burning building. Everybody else was running out yelling fire. And so to take the contrarian approach to go in when everybody else was running out, that was a great strategy. And I think now just looking at opportunities, I think sourcing them different ways, like sometimes my primary partner will basically lock up a a lot. And now that you've locked up that lot, you can pay more for the lot next to it on either side, right? Because you control that lot. So you try to get that first lot inexpensive, but then if you can assemble two, now your density, instead of being able to build four, four units on that one lot, if you have two lots, now you can maybe build 10 units. So that additional lot will give you the ability to have 10 units versus eight, right? So you can actually afford to pay more. Now, once you have those two, then you might be able to pay more for the lot on the other side or the the one next adjacent. So that's one of the strategies that's been used to assemble a bigger piece of property in order to have density. And density allows you to build more units in a smaller space, which again, if you have more units to sell, it's going to be more profitable. A lot of people get scared off of development because the entitlement process can be so unpredictable depending on the community, community meetings and All of a sudden, somebody stands up and says, oh, that oak tree has been there for 100 years. You can't cut it down. And all of a sudden, what you thought was going to be a great deal, all of a sudden just vanishes in thin air. How do you overcome those risks when you are working in that environment, in that dense environment, in particular in California? There are risks. You want to take calculated risks, right? So a lot of times, if you're buying at cost or close to cost, and you're picking up an old duplex or a duplex and then next to it is a triplex, right? And that's where you want to develop. You look at that situation and you say, okay, what can I pay for that? How can I make sense of that? What can work? And then because you're going to have revenue coming in off that duplex or triplex, that can actually help sustain you as you go through the entitlement process, 
Some you try to go into buy right situations, which is in LA here, it's like you have the right to build so many units and you count on that. If you get more density, that's a bonus, but sometimes you don't count on that. But the entitlement process is tricky. But again, you want a very sophisticated partner. You want someone with a lot of experience, a great team to get through that process. Sometimes you can see red flags right away. But what you don't want to do is buy those units, tear them to the ground, and then for some crazy environmental reason, you're not allowed to build them back up. Now you just got an empty piece of dirt that you can't do anything with. So again, you have to be very smart. It helps to be sophisticated, have really smart people, hire consultants that understand and deal with the city on a regular basis. Those are some of the strategies to to employ. Oh boy, I'm talking to a kindred spirit here. This is exactly the way we approach things. We always validate a project based on what's buildable by right so that we don't have to ask permission. And if the project can be justified on that basis and then the rest is pure upside, then we'll go forward with it. If you can justify it by right and if you're hoping that you're going to be allowed to build a 20-story building there and it doesn't work with anything less than 15 stories, uh, you're taking a huge flyer. But if that four-story building that's allowed by right, if that pencils and you can get 20 stories maybe in your wildest dreams, then absolutely go forward. Yeah, makes it makes a lot of sense. I love it. So you started out on the LP side. You're now a GP. You're co-GPing with some other development partners. What's your primary source of capital? You're part of the entertainment industry. Are you looking at other folks in the entertainment industry as sources of capital? It really started more friends and family, right? People wanted to know what I was doing after a kind of a number of years in this business. I've done super well at it. And so people always looking for ways to deploy their capital, especially in ways that with people they know or can trust. So it really started as that. And it came from need. Our development partner wanted to do a new project and, hey, we need $2 million of capital. Can you help me with that? So that's basically how that grew. It was just like being in a position to help. And then because I had experience with them, basically it was it was a proven strategy. I had experience with the developer. I think a lot of times you get in trouble is when you're experimenting. You have an unknown entity or somebody doesn't know you or you don't know them. Really, that it all looks good on paper. I would encourage anyone here before they invest money with any opportunity is talk to investors who have gone full cycle. Sometimes they'll turn you on to investors that have invested with them, but until that investor got his money back, doesn't really mean a whole lot. You don't really know what's happening. You don't know who's naked until the tide goes out. So you you definitely want to talk to investors that have gone full cycle, hopefully investors from the very beginning, because it's okay. People say, yeah. okay, I've been doing this for 10 years. Okay. Who invested with you 10 years ago? Are those people still investing with you now or are they not? If they're not, probably means that the promises weren't kept. But if people have a long track record, where it's, this guy's been investing with me eight to 10 years and he's done eight projects with me, that's usually a sign of very good things because as you have experience and success, then you tend to redeploy with that same operator. So that whole history is really important and why it's really important to really do a deep dive on who are you partnering with? What's their success? What's their track record? What's their actual track record? What does it look, what did their performa look like? Were they promising 25% returns and delivered six? Or were they promising 12 and they delivered 18? Those are two different people. And sometimes, hey, sometimes maybe the, a super good guy could have the first scenario, but more than often the track record and the history will tell you a lot about that person that you're going to partner with. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, Brian, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Yeah, if you're interested in what we're doing in Los Angeles or other investment opportunities that I've been involved with, happy to share those opportunities. Always myself, always looking for great opportunities as well. It's part of the reason we're out here. But if you go to capitalstackinvestments.com, so it's capitalstackinvestments.com, and just fill out the little form there. We have uh, some great resources. I and my partner, we worked on a 50 lessons from 50 deals. So just things that went right, things that didn't go right, what we learned, what were the, in retrospect, looking back, like what were the warning signs? What were the signs that hey, it proved this to be a great deal? I just did one about like how investing with super experienced investors. I did a self-storage deal and those guys have been in the self-storage business for 20 years. We got a great deal on the acquisition, but by being with really trusted and highly experienced partners, that's purely passive, but I made 30% returns over a six-year period, worked out great. But the reason it was great is because this was not their first rodeo. They had a proven track record of success. But yeah, go to Capital Stack Investments, fill out that form, and I'd love to stay in touch with you and uh, stay connected. Fantastic. Well, Brian, thank you for the perspective and for the insight. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Brian at CapitalStackInvestments.com. That's CapitalStackInvestments with an S.com. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. 